everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover the life and career of Sir Astley Cooper, a famous British surgeon who had practiced in the late 18th and early 19th century. He made a number of contributions to anatomy and surgery and conducted a number of firsts in surgery. Of course, we'll take a few tangents to cover the first ligation of the carotid artery done on a ship at sea, some other well-known surgeons, and other interesting tidbits. And we'll finish with an infamous case involving Sir Astley Cooper's nephew, Bransby, which is considered one of the first medical legal cases in the recorded literature. As I've been off for a while, I let this podcast take on more than usual, so there's lots to cover in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Astley Paston Cooper was born on August 23, 1768, at Brook in Norfolk, England. His father, Samuel, was a country clergyman of the Church of England, and his mother, Maria Susanna Bransby, who was a descendant of Sir Isaac Newton, was a successful author in her own right. Astley was not the first in his family to go into medicine, though. His paternal grandfather was a surgeon in Norwich, and his uncle, William Cooper, was a senior surgeon at Guy's Hospital in London, England. Okay, let's take our first detour here. Guy's Hospital dates back to 1721, when it was founded by philanthropist Thomas Guy. His fortune came from publishing unlicensed Bibles and from something called the South Sea Bubble. The South Sea Company, in 1711, was given a monopoly on all trade to the South Seas, which at the time meant trade with the rich Spanish colonies in South America, by the British government. In return, the company would assume a portion of the national debt. By 1719, the company proposed to assume the entire public debt of the British government. Stock prices went through the roof, going from 100 pounds to almost 1,000 pounds per share over a single year. While a lucky few, like Guy, made fortunes, Many more were financially ruined when the bubble burst and the stock price came crashing down. There's a lot more to it, but that's the basic idea. Thomas Guy, after receiving his fellow governor's support, leased the south side of St. Thomas Street for his new hospital at the cost of one peppercorn for a period of 999 years, and Guy's hospital was born. Anyways, back to Astley Cooper. He grew up in a large, wealthy family, having nine siblings. Tragically, five of his sisters would die of tuberculosis, as did one brother, Samuel Lovett Cooper, the father of Bransby Cooper, and we'll get back to him later. Astley was sent at an early age to live with his wet nurse and spent five years on her farm. He referred to them as his adopted family, but later in life he was critical of his parents' decision to send him away, stating, quote, All animals, even those of the most ferocious character, show affection for their young. Do not forsake them, but yield them their milk. Do not neglect, but nurse and watch over them." As a young student, Astley was described as a poor scholar, running a bit wild, preferring horseback riding to school, and lacked aspirations to go to university. Instead, he was homeschooled by his parents. However, a childhood experience may have inspired his later interest in surgery. A foster brother of mine named John Love, aged about 13 years, was playing and fell as a wagon was passing and one of the wheels of the wagon went over the back of the knee as he lay with his face to the ground. The wagon stopped and when he was drawn from under it, a stream of blood directly burst from his ham. A handkerchief was tied tightly over the wound and was carried home in a fainting state." As was typical of the training at the time, Astley started out by being apprenticed to Edward Digby, a local surgeon at the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. He would then move to London in August of 1784 and was articled to his previously mentioned uncle, William Cooper, who, if you remember, was a senior surgeon to Guy's Hospital at the young age of just 16. 
Another side note on London hospitals. Guy's Hospital was established near the far more ancient St. Thomas Hospital, which dates back to the 12th century CE and was run by Augustinian monks and nurses and dedicated to St. Thomas Becket. Guy's was actually originally built as a place to treat incurables discharged from St. Thomas's. Up until 1825, Guy's and St. Thomas's were referred to as the United Hospitals or the Borough Hospitals and were closely associated. Medical students would attend teaching at both hospitals. Lectures in medicine were given at Guy's and combined lectures in anatomy and surgery at St. Thomas's. That is, until Cooper led to them separating. But we'll get to that. Right now, our legend is still a medical student. Failing to impress in his first year at Guy's, his uncle was unwilling to help him. So Astley switched allegiance to Mr. Henry Klein, a surgeon at St. Thomas's, a colleague of his uncle William and former student of John Hunter. See Podcast 50. Klein turned out to be a good mentor. Astley roomed with the large Klein family, and Henry would help to further his career, as we'll see. In October 1787, at the start of his fourth year, Astley spent seven months studying in Edinburgh and then returned to London. By 1789, he was appointed demonstrator in anatomy at St. Thomas Hospital for his mentor Klein's dissecting room at the age of 21. And two years later, in 1791, Astley Cooper was appointed lecturer in anatomy as an assistant to Klein. It was here where Cooper started to make his mark, separating the teaching of anatomy and surgery and integrating the teaching of pathology, embryology, and physiology. Here are his thoughts on the subject, quote, Operations cannot be safely undertaken by any man unless he possesses a thorough knowledge of anatomy. This is the real groundwork of all surgical science, and it has ever been found that half-anatomists are bungling practitioners, end quote. On a personal note, Astley Cooper got married that same year to Anne Cock, a distant cousin of his mentor Klein, and the daughter of a wealthy merchant, who left a couple of fortune of 14,000 pounds and bought a house for them. Of course, Cooper wasn't able to entirely separate the personal and professional, giving a lecture on their wedding day, and using their honeymoon to France in the summer of 1792 to also study the work and teachings of the great French surgeons. Now, those familiar with European history may have noted that that period of time in Paris was one of violent upheaval due to the French Revolution, and the newlyweds were forced to escape from the bloodshed and terror. One additional note on his personal life. In the winter of 1794, their first child, Anna Maria, died. The couple then adopted a baby girl named Sarah, who they raised as their own. Back in London following his training, Cooper did not immediately set up a private practice. As he described it, quote, For three years after my apprenticeship expired, I did not seek business, but devoted myself to the study of my profession and to teaching students entirely, end quote. This, of course, endeared him to his students, and he quickly became a popular lecturer. Cooper was appointed as professor of anatomy at Surgeons Hall, which, if you recall from the bonus episode three of Barbers and Surgeons, was the home of the Company of Surgeons, which had broken away from the barbers in 1745 and became the Royal College of Surgeons in 1800. If you further recall, this was next to the Old Bailey, which was the Central Court of London. Condemned criminals were hung at the nearby Newgate Prison, so named because it was at the site of a gate in the ancient Roman London Wall. And the two buildings were separated by Dead Man's Walk, where crowds would gather to throw rotten fruit and vegetables and stones at the condemned. Anyways, part of the position held by Cooper entailed performing public dissections of the bodies of the executed criminals. He held the position for two years, preferring not to continue for a third year. Now this touches on another subject that pops up from time to time on the show. There are very few bodies available, legally, for anatomical research. The British Parliament passed the Murder Act in 1752, 
which allowed judges to substitute the public display of the bodies of executed criminals with dissection. This was thought to be a way to increase the deterrent effect of the death penalty, as dissection was generally felt to be a horrifying fate. However, this did not provide nearly enough bodies for the hospitals and teaching centers, leading to the rise of the resurrectionists, who would exhume dead bodies to fulfill this purpose. And Astley Cooper, being a teacher of anatomy, frequently had need of their services. In fact, one source notes that he would have some of the resurrectionists, also known as body snatchers, on retainer to provide him with cadavers for his study and teaching, and he would even support their families if they were jailed. Later in his career, Cooper would campaign for the legalization of dissection, which resulted in the passage of the Anatomy Act in 1832, which we've touched on in previous episodes. Astley Cooper did not limit his study of anatomy to humans. In 1797, the Coopers moved into the former house of his mentor, Henry Klein, for two reasons, according to Cooper. Quote, it was well calculated a private practice and has also a large warehouse attached to it, which will make a most admirable dissecting room, end quote. He would accept unusual animals to dissect, including an elephant from the Royal Menagerie, which he dissected on his lawn. His loft at one time was occupied by up to 30 dogs, as well as cats, snakes, and rabbits. In fact, taking inspiration from a series of lectures he attended by the legendary surgeon John Hunter, see Podcast 50, on aneurysms, Astley Cooper conducted a number of animal experiments of his own in his lab. Experimenting on cats and dogs, he would ligate or tie off the femoral arteries and then let the animals heal. Later dissections demonstrated the presence of collateral circulation. This would become important in his later operations on humans, as we'll see. Hunter also inspired him with his emphasis on the importance of searching for new knowledge and the value of experimentation. Here's what Cooper wrote about Hunter's ideas, which seem relevant even today. Quote, You must think for yourselves, only do not rest contented with thinking. Make observations and experiments, for without them, your thinking will be of little use. End quote. Anyways, back to blood vessels. At the time, diseases of the carotid arteries, including aneurysms, were thought to be untreatable. And quick side note, the carotid arteries are a pair of arteries that bring oxygenated blood up the neck and to the brain. The name comes from the Greek karotis, which means drowsiness. This is because interruption of the carotid arteries causes a loss of consciousness. For those familiar with wrestling or martial arts, this is the principle on which the so-called sleeper hold, also known as a blood choke, is based on. Okay, back to Astley Cooper. On November 1st of 1805, he performed the first common carotid artery ligation, tying off, to repair an aneurysm in a patient named Mary Edwards. He did this by making a two-inch incision above the neck muscle called the sternomastoid, or sternocleidomastoid, to expose the common carotid. He then separated the vagus nerve, whose name comes from the Latin word for wandering, same root as vague or vagabond, and then passed two thread ligatures around the vessel and tied firmly. The pulsation in the vessel ceased, and the patient made good progress postoperatively. However, on November 21st of 1805, Mary Edwards died, and her autopsy revealed inflammation of the aneurysmal sac. This was a bold surgery based on his animal experiments, and Cooper would do this procedure on a total of just nine patients over his career, two of whom were doctors, with recovery in seven. I think we should take a moment to recognize the countless patients upon whom these bold experiments were attempted on, and who frequently paid dearly to help move scientific progress forward. The history of surgery is about them, too. Now, I want to tell you a very interesting story that is only tangentially related, but is simply too interesting to pass by. 
Now, while many credit Cooper as the first to tie up the carotid artery, this was not in fact true. The first was a naval surgeon named David Fleming, who not only did the first recorded ligation of the carotid, he did it on a hemorrhaging patient in the sick bay of a ship at sea in 1803, two years before Cooper. Now, David Fleming appears in the naval records as acting surgeon's mate in the ship called the Nymph on April 27, 1793. His acting status resulting from his having been entered without an examination. It was not until July 4th of 1793 did he appear before the Court of Examiners at the Theatre of the Company of Surgeons and was passed second mate of the third rate. I find the history of the ship's surgeon, a tradition still carried on to this day in the form of the flight surgeon, fascinating. The fourth and final bonus episode will cover this history. So on October 9th, 1803, David Fleming made an entry into his journal. Quote, Mark Jackson, a servant on board His Majesty's ship Tonant, attempted to commit suicide, end quote. The man had cut his throat, and when Fleming reached him, he was bleeding freely. Unable to move him, he ligatured the bleeding vessels on the spot, but by the time he had done so, Jackson was pulseless. The wound, four inches long, had divided, quote, the trachea between the thyroid and cricoid cartilages, the two superior thyroid arteries, the internal jugular vein, and grazed the outer and muscular coats of the carotid artery, end quote. Fleming sewed him up as best he could, and the patient was recovering well until October 17th, when during a fit of coughing, the carotid artery burst and, quote, torrents of blood issued from the mouth and nose, end quote. Fleming attempted to secure the artery through the wound, but failed owing to the vessel's friable state, and he therefore cut down on it below the wound. Fleming intended to tie the carotid artery, although he, quote, had never heard of such an operation being performed, end quote, and the patient was now an extremist. Jackson survived the operation and made an uninterrupted recovery, and by October 22nd, he was able to swallow. Prior to that, he was fed by nutrient glysters, which I believe is an old term for enema. By October 24th, Fleming removed the ligature by dissecting through healthy granulation tissue. His patient was on the sick list until December 20, 1803, and on the attending list until March of 1804, when he was sent to Plymouth Hospital for further recovery. The trail goes cold there, but presumably the patient survived. A report of the operation was published in the Medico-Surgical Journal and Review in January of 1817, and amazingly is available online. Now in that same year, 1817, Cooper performed what may be considered the pinnacle achievement of his career, the ligation of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. The patient, a 39-year-old porter named Charles Hudson, was admitted to Guy's Hospital on April 9, 1817, with a left groin aneurysm. On the third day of admission, the swelling increased to double its size and extended well up into the abdomen, meaning the belly would have to be opened to get to it. By the 19th day, the groin mass started bleeding, requiring pressure dressings to control. By the afternoon of the 25th, the bleeding had become severe, and by that evening at 9 p.m., Cooper realized that further hemorrhage would be fatal, so he decided to operate. Cooper opened the abdomen, felt down to the spine, passed a needle between the aorta and spine, armed it with a ligature of thread, tied it off and closed the abdomen. William Osler's uncle was present as a student during the operation and reported that Cooper looked around at the critical point of the operation and said, quote, Gentlemen, I have the pleasure of informing you that the aorta is now hooked on my finger. End quote. After the operation, Hudson's right limb recovered warmth and sensation, but the left limb, the side of the aneurysm, became progressively pale and cold, and he died 40 hours after the operation. The post-mortem report read, quote, 
The thread had been passed around the aorta about three-quarters of an inch above its bifurcation and rather more than an inch below the part at which the duodenum crosses the artery. It has not included any portion of omentum or intestine, end quote. An important observation, as it was done blind. The collateral circulation was fine on the normal side, but the collateral vessels of the disease side had been obliterated by the aneurysm's expansion and hemorrhage. Sir Astley Cooper never had a chance to try again, but a number of other surgeons did, without success, until Rudolf Mattis of New Orleans reported a successful case for an iliac aneurysm in 1923, more than 100 years after Cooper's attempt. Mattis's patient survived 18 months only to later succumb to tuberculosis. Let's take a few minutes to talk about Dr. Rudolf Mattis, as he's an interesting and influential character in the history of surgery. Now, he likely could be a subject of his own podcast, but since I haven't released an episode in a while, I thought I might as well make this one longer than usual. So Rudolf Mattis was born in Bonnet Carr, Louisiana, in 1860 to Spanish immigrants. His father was a physician, and Rudolf spent much of his childhood in Spain, but returned to the U.S. to study medicine in New Orleans at the University of Louisiana, the forerunner of Tulane University in 1877. He graduated at the age of 19 in 1880 and continued on with surgical training in New Orleans. Mattis would go on to become the chief of surgery at Tulane University from 1895 to 1927 and live to be 97 years old. Here's a few interesting tidbits. Mattis spoke six languages, and Will Mayo, see Podcast 49, called him the world's best educated physician. He lost his right eye as a result of gonococcal conjunctivitis, which he contracted while draining a tubo-ovarian abscess. Mattis was a cinephile, movie lover, and advocated film as a means of surgical training as early as 1912. One famous story was that he had a secret operation performed by his close friend William Halstead, see Podcast 35. This took place at Halstead's home in Baltimore in the fall of 1903. Neither man ever spoke of it and did not even mention it in their private correspondence. Mattis himself gave up the secret at a memorial to Halstead in 1923, stating that Halstead had operated on him 20 years earlier, but at that time did not admit what it was. It wasn't found until Mattis's death in 1957 during the autopsy that he'd undergone a right orchiectomy, most likely for a type of testicular tumor called a seminoma. As mentioned, Mattis performed the first successful case of an iliac aneurysm repair in 1923. But much earlier, in May 6, 1888, he performed the first successful endoaneurysmography, a very fancy term for treating an aneurysm by opening its sac and collapsing, folding, and suturing its walls so that the lumen of the blood vessel approximates its normal size. Now remember, this was an era before artificial graft materials were available. This operation, which was done on a traumatic brachial artery aneurysm, is regarded by some as the birth of modern vascular surgery. Now let's get back to Sir Astley Cooper. I found a description of his daily life, which I thought was kind of interesting. Cooper began at 6 in the morning, visiting his private dissecting suite, and worked until 7.30. He then dressed for the day and saw non-paying patients, then breakfast, followed by private patients attending to them in his consulting room until 1 p.m. Cooper then took a carriage to Guy's, met a large group of medical students, and would do ward rounds there until 2 p.m., then crossed to St. Thomas's to lecture for an hour. There, Cooper would visit the dissecting room to supervise and comment on dissections, and by 3.30 would leave to attend to private operations. This occupied him until 6 or 7 when he would go home for dinner. Some evenings, he also had surgical lectures. That's a pretty trying schedule, which would partly explain his prodigious output in both education and research. Sir Astley Cooper educated many of the surgeons of his day, 
including the poet John Keats, who served as a dresser, the equivalent of a house officer or junior resident at Guy's Hospital. Keats actually completed his training but chose not to practice medicine in favor of writing. Now I know we've been jumping around the timeline a bit, but let's go back to 1800. Astley's uncle, William Cooper, retired from Guy's Hospital. There were four candidates to replace him, including Astley, who was chosen by the Board of Governors to succeed his uncle. He joined Guy's as a surgeon in October. In that same year, 1800, Astley Cooper read a paper to the Royal Society entitled Observations on the Effects Which Take Place from the Destruction of the Membrane Tympani of the Ear, demonstrating that near-normal or normal hearing was possible with a ruptured tympanic membrane, or eardrum. The following year, he read a second paper that suggested myringotomy, cutting into the eardrum, could be a treatment for obstructive deafness. Now, this work was original and earned Cooper the honor of becoming a Fellow of the Royal Society. He also received the prestigious Copley Medal, the highest honor the Society could bestow. In 1804, Cooper published the first volume of the Treaty on Hernia, one of his greatest works, which focused on inguinal hernias. Quick plug, pun intended, hernias will be the topic of the next episode. The second volume of the Treaty on Hernia that came out in 1807 was on femoral, umbilical, obturator, sciatic, diaphragmatic, and mesenteric hernias. This publication grew his reputation substantially. Cooper was the first to give an accurate description of the internal abdominal ring and the fascia transversalis, key anatomy in the treatment of hernias, and was also commemorated by the attachment of his name to what he himself depicted as the ligament of pubis, also called Astley Cooper's ligament. In May of 1813, the Council of the Royal Colleges of Surgeons anointed him the Hunterian Professor of Comparative Anatomy, but Cooper only lasted a year in this position due to another family tragedy. In 1814, his adopted daughter Sarah died, and he decided to abandon the post. However, his academic output continued. In 1818, the first volume of surgical essays written with Benjamin Travers was published. Travers would come to play an important role later, as we'll see. In 1820, Cooper was appointed to the Court of Examiners at the College of Surgeons. His success and fame meant that his clientele grew to include the wealthy and the aristocracy, which eventually led to him treating the king, despite not being the court surgeon. In that same year, 1820, Cooper was summoned to remove an infected sebaceous cyst from the head of King George IV. The king had requested him specifically and made Cooper a baronet for his valor and aptitude, despite the risk of erysipelas, which is a superficial skin infection in the age before antibiotics could become fatal. A baronet is a member of the lowest hereditary titled British order with the status of a commoner, but able to use the prefix sir, hence Sir Astley Cooper. In addition to the title, Cooper was given a costly epergine, a table centerpiece designed by the king himself. Sir Astley Cooper continued to attend to the king from there on, and in 1828 was appointed sergeant surgeon, a post he held for two years. A quick note of clarification. The sergeant surgeon is the senior surgeon in the medical household of the royal family. The position dates back to 1253 CE, and the early ones were military surgeons who followed their king into battle. The title comes not from the military term, but rather the Latin serviens, meaning serving. Cooper was also sergeant surgeon to King William IV and Queen Victoria. As was part of the duties of the role, Cooper embalmed the body of William IV. Another role was to oversee torture to ensure the prisoner was not killed, and to screen applicants to be touched by the king for the cure of the king's evil, which I learned was a name for tuberculous lymph nodes in the neck. Now, some of you may know the word scrofula, which is another name for that lesion, which comes from the Latin scrofa, meaning breeding sow, either because pigs 
were thought to be prone to the disease, or the swollen glands looked like little pigs. Who knows? Other famous surgeons to hold the title include Claudius Amiant, whom we will meet in the next episode, Benjamin Travers, old friend of Cooper, Frederick Treves, a subject of a future episode, and Joseph Lister, see episode four, among others. Okay, this episode has gone on a bit long, but before we get to the end bit, I think we should cover quickly a few other areas where Sir Astley made a name for himself. One interesting little known fact is that Cooper reported on the nature and treatment of Palmer contracture in 1822, 10 years before Dupuytren would, even though it is his name associated with it. In fact, Henry Klein, the mentor of Cooper, had described the condition, but only published once on it, looking at comparative anatomy. It was in another book published by Cooper, this one called A Treaty on Dislocations and Fractures of the Joints, which was published in 1822, where he described it. He treated it with a bistery, which is a narrow, sort of needle-like instrument, later called a Cooper's knife. Now, Sir Astley Cooper actually traveled to Europe in 1825, where he met Dupuytren, and they corresponded several times. Baron Guillaume Dupuytren was a famous French surgeon, partly for having treated Napoleon Bonaparte's hemorrhoids. And this anecdote made me laugh. Dupuytren was famously tight-fisted and taciturn, and the story goes that as a medical student, he would steal fat from corpses in the dissection room to burn in his reading lamp at home. <gasps> Cooper also recognized the danger of compromised blood supply to the femoral head after intracapsular fractures through his many experiments, and he gave a concise description on how to use the heel and the axillary armpit method of reducing a separated shoulder. But it was an operation that involved the hip that was to be one of his most famous. On January 15 or 16 in 1824, Cooper performed an amputation through the hip joint on a soldier from the Battle of Waterloo. The patient was William Jones, a 47-year-old veteran, whose left leg had been shattered during the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. While the battle surgeons had amputated above the knee on the battlefield, he had since suffered from chronic osteomyelitis, or infection of the bone, in the stump, and his health gradually deteriorated. Cooper recommended disarticulation of the hip, which is to remove the entire lower leg through the hip capsule, leaving just the socket, so to speak. The limb was removed in just 20 minutes, and securing the arteries and dressings took 15 minutes more for a total of 35 minutes. A description of the operation was the first to be reported in the very first volume of The Lancet, the history of which we'll come back to, but first, a quote about the operation from an observer. Quote, During the operation, the man was extremely faint, but some wine being given him and some fresh air admitted, he recovered. The patient bore the operation with extraordinary fortitude. And after all, he said to Sir Astley that, quote, it was the hardest day's work he had ever gone through, end quote, to which Sir Astley replied that it was almost the hardest he had ever had, end quote. Despite a somewhat rough course, he was able to leave the hospital after eight weeks. And afterwards, the patient was, quote, living in the country residence of Sir Astley Cooper, end quote. Apparently, it was not unusual for him to arrange for his patients to recuperate at his own expense. Now, as for Cooper himself, the winter of 1824 was difficult on his health, and by January of 1825, at the age of 56, he retired from hospital work, which gave him the right to name his successors. He chose two men, his old student John South and his nephew Bransby Cooper. Those were rejected by the governors, which angered Cooper. Along with his old colleague Benjamin Travers, Sir Astley managed to persuade guys to split from St. Thomas's and found an entirely separate medical school, which thereby created a position for his nephew. Now, Bransby Blake Cooper, 1792 to 1853, was the son of Dr. Samuel Cooper, a Church of England clergyman and nephew of Sir Astley Cooper, as we covered earlier. 
As a young man, he signed on as a midshipman of the HMS Staley in 1805, but quickly had to leave the Royal Navy due to severe seasickness. His uncle Astley encouraged him to enter medicine. After apprenticing in Norfolk, he moved to London to enter the United Borough Hospitals, remember that's how guys in St. Thomas's were called, to study under his uncle. Bransby even moved in with Astley and assisted him in the dissecting room, eventually being appointed demonstrator of anatomy, which was the incident that spurred the division of the two hospitals and the creation of a new medical school at Guy's Hospital. Now, this was the literal definition of nepotism, as the word comes from nipot, which means nephew in Italian. Bransby took the chair of anatomy at the new school, was elected assistant surgeon in 1825, and became a full surgeon that same year, which he retained until his death in 1853. Now, by all accounts, Bransby was a competent surgeon and deserving of the positions bestowed upon him, but he was in part famous due to the publication of a description of a surgical misadventure. So let's dig into that story. First off, the story was published in The Lancet, a medical journal that most people in medicine would now be familiar with, but at the time was a new startup journal. Founded by Thomas Wakeley, a graduate of the Borough Hospitals and student of Sir Astley Cooper, the first issue was published on October 5, 1823. His motivation was to battle what he saw as the corruption within the medical profession, where influence counted for more than ability, and where ignorance and avarice were rampant, as one source put it. Now, this very first edition included copies of lectures by Sir Astley Cooper, which was done without Cooper's permission. This was a problem, as a good deal of Sir Astley's income came from admission fees to his well-attended public lectures. Amazingly, Sir Astley Cooper posed as a patient to gain entry into Wakeley's office, where he found him editing another of his lectures bound for the next edition of The Lancet. The story goes that both men simultaneously saw the absurdity of the situation, broke into laughter, and became good friends. Wakeley was spared a plagiarism lawsuit, and Sir Astley agreed to further publication of his lectures, with the caveat that he was not to be identified as their originator. All right, so let's get on to Bransby Cooper. On March 29th of 1828, The Lancet published a highly sensational description of a lithotomy operation, see Podcast 67, entitled, The Operation of Lithotomy by Mr. Bransby Cooper, which lasted nearly one hour. The account was written in an unfriendly manner, to say the least, describing an incompetent attempt to remove a bladder stone in a strong and healthy patient who died shortly after the operation. Cooper lost his way anatomically and in a panic used multiple instruments, barking desperate orders to his assistants, which was observed by a number of surgeons. The report was an attack not only on Bransby's abilities, but on Guy's Hospital and even on Sir Astley himself. So, Bransby Cooper sued for libel. The case was heard in December of 1828 in the Court of the Queen's Bench. Not unlike a modern case, a number of props were used by Wakeley, including a model of a child in the lithotomy position, a set of pelvic bones, and examples of various instruments used by Bransby Cooper during the fatal operation. Wakeley's defense was that not only should hospitals aspire to the highest standards of care, but mechanisms should be in place to ensure that standards are set and met. Cooper's lawyer relied on the fact that Bransby had been chosen by Sir Astley Cooper as someone fit to operate a guise. The public was fascinated by this case. The jury deliberated for two hours and returned with a verdict for the plaintiff, Bransby, but for damages of only 100 pounds, which was considered a victory for Wakeley and the Lancet. The event was considered nationally as a landmark case, and Wakeley's legal expenses were quickly raised by public subscription with the excess funds sent to the widow of Cooper's unfortunate patient. And here's a fun fact. The bladder stone in question is on display in the Gordon Museum at Guy's Hospital, 
If any of my listeners are in the area, please take a picture and send it to me. So that is the story of what is widely considered as the first medical legal case. But let's wrap up the episode with the final days of Sir Astley Cooper. About 1827, following the death of his wife and in poor health, he retired from practice altogether. But out of boredom, he returned to London to practice again after just six months. Upon his return, Cooper was elected president of the Royal College of Surgeons, and he would serve again in 1836, and got remarried to a lady named Catherine Jones. Cooper served as the vice president of the Royal Society in 1830, and published a number of additional books, including Illustrations of the Diseases of the Breast, Observations on the Structure and Diseases of the Testis, and the covering of the spermatic cord is now known as Cooper's fascia, and his physiological experiments paved the way for modern vasectomies, The Anatomy of the Thymus Gland, and The Anatomy of the Breast, in which he described the ligament suspensoria, which we now refer to as Cooper's ligament of the breast, or Cooper's droopers, as I was taught to aid the memory. In 1835, he had reached the age of 67, and although his health was failing, he continued to see patients and work on a book called Malignant Diseases of the Breast, which was never finished. By the end of 1840, Cooper had great difficulty breathing. This progressed, and he died at 1.06 p.m. on February 12, 1841, in Conduit Street. His last words to the group of anxious observers was, quote, God bless you and goodbye to you all, end quote. Sir Astley Cooper was 72 years of age and was buried under the chapel at Guy's Hospital. According to his will, an autopsy was to be performed, which was done by Mr. John Hilton, a surgical colleague. The details were actually published in The Lancet in a report called History of the Last Illness of Sir Astley P. Cooper, Baronet, and Examination of the Body After Death. The findings indicated an umbilical and inguinal hernia, a scar consistent with previous tuberculosis infection, atherosclerosis of the aorta, and congestive heart failure, the presumed cause of death. Astley Cooper left a large bequest for prizes for student essays designed to encourage and foster observation and experimentation, a lifelong passion of this legend of surgery. All right, that wraps up another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I know it went on a bit long. Now, the next episode will be in roughly a month, sometime in late August, as I continue my quasi-summer vacation. I'm going to tackle hernias, which is, of course, a huge topic, but at least we can look at some of the different types, where they got some of their names, and some pioneering surgeons. It should be interesting, to say the least. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always... Thanks for listening.